Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're playing through Star Strider, the 1987 science fiction fighting fantasy book written by Luke Sharp with illustrations by Gary Mays. This is Luke Sharp's first foray into fighting fantasy, but Gary Mays had already illustrated two previous science fiction titles, Rebel, Planet, and Robot Commando, and could be considered a safe pair of hands. We're going to get into the business of the book momentarily, because first, I have two patrons to thank. The first is new patron Rich, who has been kind enough to put his hand in his pocket to support my nonsense, and has therefore been sent two adventure game books and two complete role-playing games, by way of thanks. The second is Michael, who has increased his support, which is very much appreciated. I'm in the final stages of writing part one of my two-part game book. I'm literally down to the last couple of locations, so I can confidently claim that there will be a new reward out very soon. If you'd like to get in on this action, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound or local equivalent. Thanks, as always, to all of my patrons who help keep me motivated to continue making this very silly podcast. Now let's take a closer look at Star Strider. This is another one I didn't play as a child. I think I had been burned a couple of times by science fiction books by this point and decided that they just weren't for me. I think there's a few people who felt that the science fiction offerings were weaker than the fantasy books in the series... That's certainly the impression I get from the internet anyway. This one apparently involves an intergalactic bounty hunter trying to rescue the president of the galaxy against the clock, and therefore represents an impossibly utopian future where political leaders inspire loyalty rather than anger and despair. So let's generate a character and see what happens. So there's some interesting rules elements we do need to mention at the outset. As well as giving us a mission briefing, we also get some background on the Gromulans, the villains of the piece, and the various enemies we might get to face in our adventure. Now that's a nice touch, uh, a little primer. It worked very well in Creature of Havoc, and if you're going to steal, then stealing from the best is the place to start. From this background, we learn the Gromulans are tremendous physical cowards who use fear as a weapon, alongside various androids and illusions. This means we will generate a fear score, which is 1d6 plus 6. It is tested like any other stat by rolling 2d6 and trying to get under it, but it doesn't reduce when tested. So the fear score you start with is very much the one you'll be working with throughout. Because this is against the clock, you start out with 48 time units and have to reduce them at various points with immediate failure if you run out. This is actually a mechanic I've been thinking about for a future project, so I'm going to be interested to see how it works here. We don't have separate rules for shooting combat or for space combat, something for which I am always grateful. There is a critical hit rule, any roll of a double six when fighting an android, and only an android, will automatically destroy it. That's quite nice, and I do like that it's strangely specific. On the flip side, we're cautioned against killing actual people because, oddly enough, it's illegal, even in the future, to just do a bunch of murders. To give us the chance of beating people without resorting to murder, we have a weapon called the Catchman, which squirts them with sticky netting and only works 67% of the time. It's going to be interesting working out a plan B when it inevitably fails to discharge 
the first time I try and use it. There's also a strangely worded bit about testing your stats in various ways, which I'm not even going to go into. I'll explain it as and when it comes up. There's also a bit in the intro which talks about how most of the inhabitants of Earth have descended into barbaric tribes called Hulgans, who wear coloured scarves and endlessly fight each other over the colour of their scarves. They're football hooligans, football hooligans writ large, and their names are corrupted football team names. That's the level of satire we're going to be dealing with. I thought it best to prepare you ahead of time. My character, the rogue tracer I've chosen to call Millipede Blythe Smythe, has the following stats. Skill 11, Stamina 19, Luck 11, Fear Factor 10, and obviously 48 Time Units. That's enough background chat from me. Let's dive straight in and play Star Strider. We begin with a quote from the Encyclopedia Galactica. Rogue Tracer, a hunter of fugitives, criminals and wanted beings who have a price on their heads. Formerly known as Bounty Hunters, licensed by the Trace Beam organization. Elite Rogue Tracers are known as Star Striders. Special message follows. The Gromulans have kidnapped President Zerin of the Galaxy One Federation. He has been taken to a quadrant in the northern hemisphere of the planet Earth. It is feared he is being brain-scanned at this very moment, and the Zand Corporation assures us that his... Cephaloprotector? Cephaloprotector? Yeah, Cephaloprotector. Will hold out only for a further 48 hours. After that time, our computer defence codes will be in Gromulan hands and probably in the hands of our enemies, the Empire of the Purple Flag. You are the best, Rogue Tracer in Sector 6. In the galactic top money-making table, you rank 97. You have been chosen very carefully, and your mission, should you decide to accept it, is as follows. You will make your way to Earth under the pretext of your Rogue Tracer activities. Locate the President and get him out. Space Fleet 7 will be waiting in Earth orbit for your signal. Please note that successful completion of your mission will make you very rich, but if you do not accept this assignment, Tracebeam assures us that they cannot guarantee the future flow of criminal records to your terminal for tracing. Please indicate your acceptance of the mission, yes or no. So, uh, I quite like that. We are in a slightly disreputable profession. Bounty hunters are one of those jobs that are both necessary but exist in a slightly legal grey area where they don't have the full backing of law enforcement officers and you get the impression that people don't ask too many questions about what their methods actually are. And I think this sort of strong arming feels appropriate for how these sort of desperado, semi-outlaw types are viewed by the higher-ups, so yeah, I like that. Further details now follow. We have, of course, accepted. The Gromulans are a humanoid, hyper-intelligent people of unknown origin who have previously only dabbled in world-scale terrorism. They are experts in the construction of androids and are masters of illusion. Let's hope that they don't try and defeat us using close-up magic. I hate that stuff. They are the originators of Illusovision 70 for Galaxy Ents Corporation, but were robbed of all copyright in the last century. Their latest invention is the Illusoscope, a portable illusion generator. 
The Gromulans will be expecting a rescue attempt, so beware. To assist you, we are activating our planted spy androids in that sector. Look out for these and the code match signal, but be extremely careful. The Groms are experts in turning dedicated androids. So some of the androids might be on our side, but some of the androids that are on our side may not be on our side. Nice and clear. The Gromulans have been using Earth as a base for the last century. It is a small, insignificant planet on the edge of the galaxy. Once heavily populated, but now in decline, most of the native inhabitants have emigrated to AlphaCent. Its only source of credits is the servicing of freight cruisers and the mining of salt. Unfortunately, the Phoson crystal does not function in that solar system, and we cannot pinpoint locations with sensormatics. You will have to signal the rescue fleet once you have found the president. Really do enjoy coining futuristic terms in this one. If it continues at this pace, I feel like that could get quite wearing. The remoteness of the Earth and the lack of sensor detection has meant that fugitives have flocked to the planet. You will find many targets on Earth, so you may be kept busy in your normal profession. This makes the rescue more difficult, but also strengthens your cover. So... We turn to section 1. You have docked into Earth Shuttle Station 23. All lines to Ur Sector 3, a bright neon light announces. You park your Oberon craft in the short-term airlock and walk down to a dingy-looking ticket office. There's no one around. You bang on the small plexiglass window and eventually a Megacorp android appears and stutters at you. It should have been out of commission years ago has difficulty in understanding your request for a ticket on the next shuttle, but eventually takes your credit card and utters what you will soon recognise as a traditional Earth saying. That'll do nicely. As you trudge away down the corridor, you hear the Megacorp squeaking at you to have a nice day. There are about 20 seats in the shuttle, of which only five are occupied. You are directed to your seat and given a copy of the safety procedures by a service android. You sit down on something sticky. The android asks what you will have. Would you like nothing? Would you like a cocktail? Or would you like food cubes? So, um, before we do the decision, there's a bit of Gary May's art. It is fine. Uh, it's us looking down a shuttle at the seats that are in front of us. There's someone looking back and there's an android walking towards us. Yeah, imagine the inside of a passenger shuttle with a robot and you're probably pretty close to it. It's nice that it's got a very strong protagonist's eye view quality to it. You really do feel as though you're looking through the eyes of your character, so that's nice. Now then, I am recording this at 10 o'clock in the morning and that is definitely cocktail time as far as I'm concerned. So we're going to have a cocktail a drink will only cloud your judgment, and you'll need a clear head for the task in front of you. Reduce your skill by one point. Actually, I hunt for kidnapped presidents better with a couple of drinks inside me. Drinking actually makes me a better espionage agent, I think you'll find. I mean, it certainly worked for James Bond. Oh well, skill now reduced to ten. Uh, it was probably a bit predictable, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to have a cocktail. How many game books let you have? A mimosa. Early doors. The shuttle lands in the dark segment of the planet in what appears to be a desolate area of Sector 3. There are no habitation lights and you assume that this base was built in the days when shuttles needed huge landing areas. All the passengers troop out into the station. 
you look up and see the familiar rocket-to-hire sign and go over to the shoddy counter. There is no android on duty. You stand there reading zip car brochures while the other passengers file towards the Silverhound, which is waiting outside, smoke belching from its rocket outlets. Its destination is Madrid. In the far corner, a sweepertron takes a break from work and looks at you. Do you wait around for a zip car? Do you want to talk to the android? Or join the others in the Silverhound? Well, I've no idea where the president is, so I'm going to need a clue of some sort. So I'm going to talk to the android in the hope that the android has a clue. You walk towards the android. It drops its vacuum attachment and goes out of a side door. You follow, turn a corner and find it waiting for you. It presses the code match signal and you respond. It is one of the planted androids. It gives you as much information as it has gleaned, tells you that the Groms are based in four cities, and that the Silverhound bus is the only mode of public transport to those cities. The Rocket-to-Hire company has withdrawn its services due to a lack of demand. Private zip cars are few and far between. Well, I'm very much a uh, bus person. That's my socio-economic status. Um, I'd feel uncomfortable hiring a rocket or indeed taking a futuristic taxi cab. All high-level Groms are linked into the bases through their comm terms. If you can get access to one of these terminals, you could probably get a lot of important information. When its message has ended, it begins to self-destruct. Nice, easy clue to start off with. You board the bus. All the passengers are from the shuttle. You sit down and strap up. The Silverhound lurches and then speeds off. From their conversation, you detect that most of the passengers are sales reps. The main topic is the price of salt mining equipment. One passenger, obviously a Grom, sits ahead in the first class section. He is being attended by his own android. Fancy devil. You begin to doze off while the vid screens in front of you show endless adverts from Galactic Ents Inc. Deduct two time units. Time units now 46. There is a illustration of the Silverhound bus. It's pretty good, actually. Um, the artist has chosen to employ a sort of Dutch angle technique, so that rather than the bus travelling from one side of the panel to the other, it's at an angle which gives him more space to draw the futuristic space bus, which looks properly like something out of Thunderbirds, and also lends the whole piece a real dynamic, exciting quality. So yeah, that's really good. Still on the bus. Suddenly, you wake with a start. You look out of the window to see lights flashing. The bus slows down and lands in a swirl of dust. Two Grompol androids get in and announce that they want to check IDs. When they see your rogue tracer's license, they grab you and throw you outside. Do you run for it or go along with them? Wow, that was um, very, very swiftly described. Um, ooh, this is a tricky decision. Running away does make you look guilty. Going along with evil death robots, also not a great plan. I will go along with them and hope that I can find some opportunity to give them the slip somewhere where there's actually alternative transport. You are pushed into the Grom Pole craft and made to stand in front of the Grom commander, who is sitting down. He watches you very carefully, then asks who you are tracing. Do you want to give him a name or refuse to speak? I guess we'll make up a name. 
I mean, as a professional rogue tracer, I would hope that I've got some idea of the fugitives who are available for me to roguely trace on the planet Earth. You give him a likely felon's name. The Grom is immediately suspicious. Rogue tracers never reveal their targets, even under pain of brain scan. He lets the bus go. There goes my ride. He stares at you, and you stare back, noticing how slight he is and how useless he would be in a fight. Just then he disappears, and the inside of the craft becomes a square white box. The walls, roof, and ceiling begin to close in on you. Spikes appear all over the surface and begin to ooze blood. Test your fear factor. If you're frightened, deduct two stamina points. So, let's see what happens with our fear factor of ten. Seven, well below. Everything blacks out. So we pass out regardless. Nice to see that this is already going about as well as these adventures traditionally go. When you regain consciousness, you are facing the Grom. The craft is speeding along. The Grom smiles and expresses his apologies. He has checked your ID with base station, and it matches information about known rogue tracers. He asks if you play chess, and you agree to a game. Immediately a beautiful set appears, suspended in mid-air. He tells you that they will be making a stop first, but will get you back to the bus as soon as is possible. You find him to be very intelligent and galaxy-wise. He wins the game easily. A bit sad, I was sort of looking forward to playing a little mini-game there, but no, apparently not. This writing style is uh, very terse. Once it gets going, the craft settles in a Grom pole station. You stay in the craft and watch the Grom, who is talking to two guards outside and pointing towards you. In front of you is a standard IPX computer. You trust the Grom, sit back and relax, take the opportunity of getting information from the computer, or steal the Grom pole craft and fly away. I am very tempted to steal the Grompole craft. I think this guy, this uh, officer, is giving me a load of old flannel, to be brutally honest. Um, but we do need information, so I am going to try and hack the computer right under his big Grom nose. I mean, I've no idea whether Groms even have noses, but you take my point. You sit at the computer... Groms are using the plain L language system, so you call up the file directory. Is that a reference to the C programming language? A lot of references in this. I don't think I'm getting them all. I was alive in 1987, but I wasn't that plugged into these incredibly culturally specific references that the author does seem to enjoy. You ask for a visual display. A message appears asking for a passcode and allowing you five gravity seconds to key in. I assume gravity seconds are the same as ordinary seconds. Then the screen begins to flash. Unauthorised user, beware, hacker. A low whine accompanies the flashing. Through the window you can see the Grom coming back with the androids. As a last resort, you aim a kick at the guts of the IPX. The screen goes blank, and another backup screen lights up. The telltale message disappears. I used to have a uh, boss, one of his mantras was, you can't let inanimate objects mess with you. And whenever any form of technology didn't immediately do what he wanted, he would just administer a swift bout of percussive maintenance. And it worked a surprising amount of the time, although we did have to get a replacement Henry Hoover 
when he kicked it all the way across the shop I was working in. You settle back in your seat. The door slides open and the Grom comes in with two Grom poles. He throws you a food cube and asks if you want a wash. When you have freshened up, you speed off to catch the Silver Hound. Add two stamina points, deduct two time units. Stamina already at maximum. I have reduced my time to 44. The Grompole craft accelerates and soon flags down the bus. The Grompole android tells you to have a nice day. You get on board. The other passengers try to ignore you. The Silverhound lurches off and you have to listen to the rep's dirty stories about the pleasure planet of Luxurus. Eventually you reach Madrid and everybody gets off. You make your way towards the Silverhound terminal. A few natives wander around carrying heavy cases. In the craft park there are two buses, one marked Roma, the other being repaired by a team of mechanoids. You see a sign marked Services and head towards it. You find that there is only one route that links the northern sectors. Most services have been cancelled due to a lack of demand and there are considerable delays between stops. While you are working out the times, an android stands next to you and you feel the code match pulse on your chronograph. Deduct two time units. Do you signal back or decide to follow it first? Time units now down 242. Um, I think we will follow it first on the basis that we were told some of the androids have been turned by the Gromulans, so it makes sense to be a little bit cautious, and we've still got plenty of time at the moment. The android wanders off out of the terminal. You give it a few minutes and then go to the window. You look out carefully. It is speaking to two Grompol androids, and it is obvious it has been turned. Luckily, the planted androids do not know what you look like. Also, I imagine that to androids or humans kind of look like walking sacks of meat and juice. The turned android moves off and fingers its stun gun as it passes a group of hooligans who are trying to break into a food cube dispenser. Do you follow the android or approach the hooligans? Well, I think the hooligans are just straightforwardly trouble. So I'm going to follow the android, because that's the most detective-y thing I feel like I can do at this time. The android walks at a standard pace in a westerly direction. Most of the tall buildings are crumbling, and as you walk along, you notice that some side streets are still inhabited by natives. The android reaches an area full of bushes and trees, from which rises a very old and grand building in excellent condition. Do you attack the android or carry on following it? I don't think there's any mileage in attacking it until we've found out exactly where it's going. This fancy, fancy house, probably. But let's make certain. The android walks towards the building and you watch carefully as it approaches one of the guards at the door. The guard takes out its stun gun and looks towards you. Suddenly you remember that some androids are equipped with sense detect and know when anyone is following them. You dive into the bushes. A tree beside you explodes and you see a Grompole craft flying towards you, cannons firing. Above the clamour and rocket whine, a steely voice orders you to stay where you are. Do you do as ordered, or take a chance and run for it? Ah, uh, well, I think the cover's been blown, hasn't it? So I think it's time to give it some serious legs towards the horizon. Firm believer in the saying that when the going gets tough. People who aren't remotely tough panic and flail about like headless chickens. 
Deduct two time units. You dash, undercover, and dive to the left, then roll away and begin to crawl silently and fast on all fours in approved Rogue Tracer style. The Grompol fires the four cannons of the craft. So we've got to test our luck. If we're lucky, the shots miss. If you are unlucky, you will have a simple burial in an unmarked grave. Oh, this is going really, really well. So our luck is 11, so we should be fine. Yep, roll of six, luck of 11. We are fine. Luck now down to 10. You run silently and fast through the undergrowth. The craft fires again, but is off target. Four XLs begin to comb the area. There are extra tough, hardcore androids that we were advised not to tangle with under any circumstances. You reach the edge of the gardens and there is nothing but open space ahead of you. The XLs are watching the edges, stun guns ready and set on maximum power. Others are using heat detector units. Do you sit tight or run for it across the open ground? I imagine the heat detector units will find me pretty rapidly if I decide to just stay where I am. So it's going to be a straight up run for it. It basically worked last time in the sense that I am still technically alive. As you dash across the road, you feel a stun shot pass over your shoulder. Suddenly, a manhole opens in the middle of the road and someone fires back at the android. He calls you over and you dive into the tunnel. He shuts it and seals it with a shot from his stun gun. You follow him through a waste system. He eventually opens a large metal door which leads off to a series of rooms full of men and women who are very familiar to you from wanted vids. This is a real rogues gallery. He's not really conjuring the world with his prose, this gentleman. This this fella who's saved us has literally just been described as someone. And we only know that it's a male someone because the author uses masculine pronouns for him. Yeah, I would say underwritten, terse, possibly to a fault. They sit you down and give you some homebrew that tastes like rocket fuel. Oh, I see, so... One mimosa will take my skill down by one for 48 hours, but some random prison hooch is just fine, apparently. They obviously think that you too are a fugitive, and they do not question you too closely. They seem to be planning raids on Grom houses in the area, and you see that there might be an opportunity of getting to a com term for information. Suddenly, a large bearded rogue with a fat belly comes up to you, and punches you in the face. Do you fight back with all your might or let him beat you? The one time in my life I accidentally got into a fight, I definitely chose the second option. It's really surprising when someone punches you in the face. Surprising and confusing. Um, but unlike the real me, a rogue tracer is made of stern stuff, so I think we will fight back with all our might. You beat him easily, but everyone recognises the rogue tracer style of fighting, and a mass of them jump on you. They take you away and get rid of you. Needless to say, your mission is over. So, we will invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule for this really rather underwhelming instant death, and let's rewind time and allow a large fat man to beat us up with impunity. Turns out my fighting style was the correct one all along. You let him win and take care not to give yourself away by your style of fighting. 
He accepts you into the group. He is proud of the fact that he has beaten everyone in the gang. He slaps you on the back and tells you that he will test you out on a plum job. The Hacienda! Lots of rich pickings there! He tells you that this is the residence of a highly placed Grom. It appears that although Earth is a haven from Tracebeam, it is difficult to make ends meet without leaving the planet. You are given some food cubes, add one stamina point. So, uh, in this world, being beaten up does not indicate a loss of stamina, and you can come out of a pummeling healthier than you were when you went in. You've still been given some food cubes. Okay, makes sense. After several gravity hours, which once again I assume are the same as ordinary hours, a guide and advisor takes you along the sewers to the Hacienda. There's no shortage of events in this, I will say that. I am enjoying it, I am enjoying it. I don't think it's the best written or the best designed book I've ever played, but I am enjoying, one, the sense of being a gumshoe. I do quite like that sort of thing. Infiltration, tailing people. That's kind of stuff that I just really enjoy in gaming. And I have to say that, yeah, stuff definitely does happen at uh, quite remarkable speed. You think that the Hacienda will have a com term which could provide information about the location of the president. What you don't need is a rogue companion interfering with your search. He takes you to the Hacienda, and then you realise that he intends to leave you there. He is taking no risks. He tells you to take anything valuable, even food. You set off and look through an open gate, deduct two time units. So, uh, a problem is introduced and resolved in two sentences. Also, it's very random how often and how many time units get deducted. Going to the Hacienda, that's two time units. Being taken through some sewers and pummeled by a rotund gentleman, that's not any time units at all. Time now down to 40. The building is spacious and luxurious. There is no one around, and you carefully slip into the courtyard. Just then, a gust of wind blows up some dust and reveals beams crisscrossing the open space in a random order. Aha, a challenge. You carefully make your way. Deduct two time units. I think it was an error to tell us that we had 48 hours, because knowing that each time unit represents one hour makes some of these decisions even more bizarre. Apparently... We're going to take two hours to cross a courtyard. I mean, I know it's covered in security beams, but even so. Okay, we've got a little mini system. Oh, exciting. So we're going to throw 1d6. That's where the beam is. Throw a second die. This is where you move to. If the two throws match, you've hit a beam. So we're doing this a total of four times. So rolling 2d6, hoping not to get a double. So, yeah. Slightly less than 50-50, I guess. I have evaded the first beam. I have evaded the second beam. I have been caught by the third beam. You have broken a beam. Everything becomes fluid. Images change. You find yourself on a large black square. You look around and see similar black and white squares and giant chess pieces all laid out to either side of you. To the left, a giant white pawn rushes towards you and stops in the white square. Then, to your right, a black knight leaps out and lands with a thump on the black square diagonally next to yours. You know it is an illusion, but it has a powerful effect on your brain. The black knight begins to chase you and you run for the edge of the board. It lands just behind you with a loud crash. Ahead, a black pawn blocks the way. You can either stand still or go left. So... 
rather than trigger a weapon of some sort, they've opted for the uh, the scarecrow out of Batman booby trap approach. I kind of feel as though the fact that I played chess with the Gromulan ought to give me an advantage in this situation. I think if I was writing it, that would be one of the ideas I would have. If, like, if you're going to have a chess-based illusion, you might as well use a, a fairly meaningless otherwise encounter earlier to uh, to pay off there. So uh, do we want to stand still or go left? Oh, a chance to go left. We'll go left. The Black Knight leaps on top of you. You have moved into its path. You feel dizzy and fall down. The illusion fades and you are surrounded by three XLs. They do not mess around. This is the end of your mission. Well, whoops. <laughs> is it all I can really say? Don't think I ever really managed to take Star Strider by the scruff of the neck. And I'm not entirely certain, but I think this might be the very first fighting fantasy novel where I have died without fighting a single baddie. So that makes this episode a little bit special in a mad sort of way. Yeah, zero combat, two deaths. Uh, so a shorter episode, but hey, that's the format. Um, maybe I'll have lots and lots to talk about once I've played through Star Strider all the way. And my closing remarks will be expansive and detailed, but uh, I am going to go away and try and finish playing Star Strider. I'll be back for you in just a couple of seconds with my closing remarks. Tatty bye. So, that was Star Strider. Did I enjoy it? Not as much as I would have hoped, but more than I was expecting on subsequent playthroughs. Now, from this review, you may get the impression that this is a terrible book, and that is probably a bit harsh. It's more that the things that are wrong with it are more interesting than the things it gets right. There's a lot you can learn about gamebook design from analysing this effort, and that means pulling apart the design decisions that held it back more than praising the elements that land, I'm afraid. Because the elements that land are functionally kind of workmanlike, the sort of thing we've discussed before many times. So the book does have a structure that makes sense. It has a clear mission that you can use to inform your decision making. It drops some nice clues which pay off later in the book. That sort of thing. Those really core narrative features are actually handled perfectly adequately. It's not something that's ever going to stand out from the crowd, but I do need to acknowledge that the fundamentals of a working game book are present and correct, and I enjoyed the light but consistent aesthetic of dangerous androids and lazy bureaucratic police officers. That said, when you look beyond the fundamentals, this is a very strange book. A very strange book indeed, at times. It's a fair distance from the absolute derangement of Space Assassin, still the single most insane game book I think I've ever played, but it's definitely on that continuum. The strangeness is enhanced by the author's slightly odd grasp on decision-making. Now, there is an art to creating options for the player where the different choices are all quite tempting. An ideal choice in a game book should be one where the text gives you a possible rationale for making either decision. A left or right fork in a tunnel is a straight 50-50 choice, but if you tell the readers that there's a tempting smell, 
coming from the left-hand path, and the sound of music coming from the right-hand path, it suddenly starts to feel like there's a reason for choosing one over the other. Perhaps your character is low on stamina, for example, and that tasty, tasty smell seems like the best option. Now, that's not always possible, nor even desirable. You are always going to have to put some arbitrary choices. That's part of the medium. Particularly, good example might be when you come into a room, you've killed the orc that's guarding the room, and then you've got a bunch of different things you could potentially investigate, and maybe you flag one of them as dangerous, but the other two or three you don't flag at all, and it's just up to the player what they choose to look at. And that feels natural because having too many clues all of the time feels just as unnatural as not having enough. However, put too many arbitrary choices in and the gamebook devolves into randomness and an exercise in map making and we all know how much I hate maps. Too much information, however, and the game can end up feeling too easy. If you always signpost the best decisions, the player may never take a wrong turn. Sometimes, you just need to make it so that what looks like the best choice is actually the worst choice to keep people on their toes and keep that sense of surprise that's so integral to the gamebook experience. This is a long-winded way of saying that Luke Sharp does not have the knack of making decisions feel natural. Rather than tease you with two tempting options, he sometimes gives you an option that feels right, which just turns out to be wrong. It's not that he's tricking you, that's not a problem. It's that he's doing it in a way that actively undermines the fantasy. Fighting a bully to win control of his gang of ruffians, that is a classic adventure trope. Letting a bully beat you to a pulp to keep your cover intact, that could be a good espionage trope, but you kind of have to tease it, and the text doesn't really do that. Fight to try and take over the gang, or keep your head down to maintain your cover, that is a really interesting choice, but only if you give those rationalisations in the text. Absent that, I don't think there's many gamers who would choose to take a beating in that situation. I think most of us want to be the active protagonist making dynamic change in the world, and we'll tend to pick the option that allows us to do that, and it feels underwhelming, shall I say, to have that proactive approach suddenly be turned into a bad thing. It's not all bad in this respect. Luke Sharp does provide some clues to point to reasonable courses of action, but it's hard to shake the feeling that the decisions feel strangely divorced from the fiction they're directing. He loves a straight left-right decision as well, and he will use them in areas where more detail would be extremely easy to provide. He seems to have an active disdain for using more than the absolute minimum number of words to describe a scene, as someone inclined to the prolix and an appreciator of purple prose in my own work, I can kind of appreciate his parsimonious approach to some degree, but I think he does take it a bit far. I don't think he ever actually describes what Gromulans, the main antagonists, physically look like, and that seems like a very strange oversight. Also, the Gromulan police are frankly bizarre. They arrest you several times, terrify you with their illusion skills, and then promptly release you. They're antagonists, but they're very odd antagonists. Everything is so underwritten, it has the feeling of a dream at times. A problem is introduced, and then resolved immediately, while NPCs' motives are frequently obscured by an unwillingness to spend any time in fleshing them out. The Gromulans trigger their illusions seemingly at random. One officer believes your cover story, and then turns himself into a pretend monster 
for no clear reason. He then lets you go. He hasn't been written as a sadist. Indeed, he has very little character at all, other than bored functionary, maybe. At another point, you are told to add two stamina points while in a salt processing plant. It's not clear why, but the only real inference is that you've scarfed down big old fistfuls of salt to regain your health. Now, I know I've mocked the use of food as a health source many, many times, probably to the point where it gets a bit tedious. But even within the idea that food is good for you and therefore can regain your stamina, I think there's something genuinely bizarre about condiments being able to do exactly the same thing. I mentioned in the playthrough that the deduction of time units has absolutely no rhyme or reason, something we'll get back to, and it all adds to this dreamlike atmosphere where you struggle to get a mental picture of what's actually going on. On this note, I want to shout out Gary May's artwork. It is not stunning, but it is functional, and without it, this book would feel so bland. He's doing, in some ways, the majority of the world building, because the text gives him so little to work with. He has to create a visual world, and he has to make really important design decisions about what things look like, because there's just no information for him to work with. I don't think he's the greatest artist ever to work on the Fighting Fantasy series, but I do have to applaud him for trying to bring a little life into the incredibly bland prose. There's some moments that he's really enlivened with his work, in particular an illusion that looks like a sort of cross between Medusa and Pinhead out of Hellraiser. In terms of the structure, this book is a series of bus journeys to European cities, which means that it feels less like a thrilling espionage adventure and more like a student on a gap year going into railing. The author mentions barely any landmarks or distinguishing features, and the cities feel broadly interchangeable and thoroughly lifeless. There's very little going on and very little that gives you a sense that one place is different from another. There is a fight with an android ball in Madrid, which I quite liked, but like most of the encounters, it's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it affair. Elsewhere, the Bastille is present after a fashion. It's described as a building, from the same writer who described a person as someone. Um, that's scarcely evocative and raises more questions than it answers, since the Bastille was demolished during the French Revolution. During that section... The Gromulans will let you go if you correctly guess which door to go through. There's a whole thing about chess pieces in this book that is never explained as far as I can tell, but it is a recurring motif, a very odd recurring motif. Anyway, if you correctly guess which door to go through, then you will be released, and then they will chase you and try and recapture you, which is positively Kafkaesque. I can't help but feel. Of all the cities, I think only London really has any kind of life to it because you basically spend the entire time navigating through the London underground system using an old map you see on the wall. And it's a really simple idea, create a maze but give the player a map to aid them if they're willing to study it as they travel. And it works actually pretty well in practice, even if the lack of descriptive flair tries to make the experience as dull as possible. I thought that was potentially such an evocative setting and such a brilliant location for a dramatic climax and a final kind of maze section. Uh, it works well for me. I'm quite agoraphobic and I loathe having to use the London Underground when I visit the capital, but I'm also fascinated by subterranean environments. So getting to explore the tunnels without the horrors of millions of commuters getting in the way, that's something like a dream for me. I just wish the author had put a modicum of effort 
into making those locations come to life. It's actually easy to get lost even with the map because there's nothing in the descriptions which differentiates one chamber or station, I guess, from another. So it's a great idea, but a real missed opportunity at the same time. And I do think there is actually a tremendous surrealist science fiction detective story buried in here somewhere. The whole idea of terrifying illusions could be great if you made that the central focus, a story in which you just cannot trust the evidence of your eyes at any given moment. I like the androids as the main physical antagonists as well, because it gives the gamebook a really nice unified feel, and androids are one of those endlessly variable antagonists. You can do a lot with a robot, you really, really can. You can have cleaning robots, and you can have that bit where you get to play at being a matador against a robot ball for reasons which are wildly unclear and I have a place in my heart for anything that does have that sense of weirdness and the sense of the bizarre and at times Star Strider has that but ties it to a comprehensible and understandable mission that is always there in the background. You don't generally get the same degree of lunacy in the fantasy books in the fighting fantasy series there seems to be something about the unrestricted possibilities of a futuristic science fiction setting that opens some very strange doors in the minds of gamebook designers. It's the single redeeming quality for me for most of the science fiction titles that they do tend to come from a very odd place indeed. And that's something I didn't appreciate at all as a child, but I do appreciate very much as a jaded adult who's seen an awful lot of different media by this point. Now let's talk about some of the subsystems. There's plenty of them. There's a lot of different and, to be honest, reasonably inventive riffs on the random dice roll as a resolution system. We saw that in the bit where avoiding the security beams meant rolling 1d6 for our position and 1d6 for the position of the beam. I'm doing that four times because he does seem to love to beat a mechanic to death. That's a fun concept, but I think there ought to have been a way of avoiding trusting to luck I don't think there is from my, my playthroughs. There's other occasions where you're randomly determining how far you need to leap to make it across a gap by rolling 3d6, and then randomly determining how far you leap based on your skill plus 1d6. I don't have a problem with rolling 1d6 and adding your skill to see how far you leap, that seems reasonable, but it does feel very strange in that the fictional world, that gap has a fixed length. It doesn't change size randomly. So while the resolution feels kind of appropriate for a random series of beams, it feels very, very weird to generate the distance of a fixed span of space by rolling 3d6. Now, both of these subsystems also suffer from redundancy. Testing your luck would have been a perfectly acceptable for the random security beams, and rolling 2d6 and trying to get below your skill would have been more than fine for the big jump. So there's a design lesson here. Don't reinvent the wheel without a good reason. We saw in the most recent Herbie Brennan book that he created so many stats, almost none of them having any kind of impact on the game, certainly not big enough that it would justify their presence. Don't reinvent the wheel without a good reason. Nothing wrong with coming up with new systems so long as they serve a purpose, but I think you should always strive to keep it simple, and to use existing systems where possible, so that when you do create new systems, they serve a distinct purpose in the narrative, and they serve a distinct purpose in the game. So the security beams felt like 
a genuinely nice little diversion. That's one where I was like, yeah, that's a kind of fun little mini game. It does obviously crop up several times later in the narrative, which makes it feel less special and, yeah, takes away from the, the uniqueness that that system had created. The big jump just doesn't work for me, particularly not when you have to do it three times. Typically, failing at any of these odd versions of a skill test leads to instant death, and Luke Sharp really does love making you roll dice several times to avoid instant death. There's a lot of instant deaths in Star Strider, and they're not written with sufficient verve to make them feel like a strangely joyful event. It's on one level no different from dying as a result of lots of combat encounters in a row, which is the go-to move of Ian Livingstone when he wants to kill you with dice, but doesn't feel anything like as exciting because fighting fantasy combat gets tenser and tenser as your stamina falls and the skill of your opponent changes. The randomness of Luke Sharp's world is static, not dynamic. There is no way of changing the likely probabilities of how well you will do in these tests. They are what they are. And there's a design lesson there. The luck system might be crude, but as your luck falls when you test it more often, it creates dynamic randomness rather than static randomness. And dynamic randomness and resource management are both really integral parts of what makes an adventure game book work. They're fairly integral parts of what makes a lot of role-playing games work. Dungeons and Dragons is basically a resource management game on many levels. In the background, you have the ongoing time pressure of your mission. This is broadly a good idea, but never quite lands in the way the same system does in Seas of Blood or the more clever approach from Appointment with Fear, where you have three days, but each day is actually a location rather than a time period. You can wander around the day in whatever way you want, and then eventually you'll be funneled to the end of the day. There's a lot of design space in using the passage of time to influence encounters. Creature of Havoc does it a bit, where you have to go through a village in a specific order to meet a particular NPC who will be dead if you do it in the wrong order. But the advantage of externalising it to a system is that you flag areas that may be affected by the passage of time using the mechanics, and that cues the player that they might want to try earlier or later. And I think using mechanics to flag different options is a good use of mechanics. Obviously, it really doesn't help that in Star Strider, the passage of time is not consistently applied. Some things that ought to take very little time cost you time units, and other things, like the time you literally go to sleep for quite a while, don't cause you to lose any time at all. Strangely enough, there's a much better implementation of the time system hidden within the text of Star Strider itself. There's a bit where you get trapped in an area and you have to escape before your oxygen runs out. This highlights how to do dwindling resources in a way that's fun and feels weighty. It's good because running out of oxygen is something we can all grasp as a very bad thing, feels proximate and lethal as a threat. It provides a pressing danger which you need to be thinking about all the time. That's a great way of doing a time counter. It's hard to actually die before you run out of oxygen, I think, but there were definitely a few moments where I thought everything was going south and I was going to asphyxiate. The key to this sequence is that you lose oxygen with every single location you enter. You are always aware of your supply dwindling, and it dwindles in a way that feels proportionate and realistic. And that creates real tension, even though the writing of the sequence consists of a series of functionally identical rooms you have to find your way through, basically by exhausting all the available options until you happen across the one with the exit. Maybe there's a clue somewhere to get you through it in a less trial and error fashion. If there was, I haven't found it. But it does show how a simple 
evocative mechanic can elevate an otherwise dull sequence into something really gripping. Crucially, you get much less oxygen than you do time. You get 20. Whereas the 48 time units, which we know are hours, feel like a lot, and the fact that they are whittled down in two-hour chunks doesn't do much to change that for most of the adventure. If you go to sleep and you lose eight hours at a single go, or you're held for questioning while various long-winded bureaucratic processes are going on, that would make a difference because you'd suddenly be aware, oh god, I could lose eight to ten hours here easily. But Luke Sharp is only willing to think in two-hour chunks, and he can't even do that with any consistency. You will probably find yourself running low towards the end if you've taken a longer path, and particularly if you mess up the final maze in the London Underground, which is broadly identical to the maze with the oxygen, but less exciting. But I don't think it should take that long for a mechanic that important to kick in. It would have been better not to have the time mechanic from the start, I think, and then tell the player, you've got 48 hours, and just throw in references at key nodes to tell them how much time they've got left, and then really start turning the screw and introducing a timer for the final act to heighten the drama and make things feel really, really tense. Uh, there is some vehicle combat. I didn't think there was going to be, but there is. Uh, but strangely, you use your own stamina and skill to resolve it, but you don't actually reduce your stamina when you take damage. It's very odd. So you can get into a tank with two stamina points, I guess, and that tank has two stamina points. It will literally fall apart if someone leans on it too hard. Equally, I guess you could get on a moped at 24 stamina points, and boy howdy, that is a moped you do not want to get into a fight with. I can understand using your skill, because you're the one driving or whatever, but surely it's the work of a moment to come up with a ballpark figure for how many stamina points you think a bus should have versus a motorcycle. The vehicle combat has one core feature in that you don't die when your vehicle is destroyed necessarily, which allows for combat encounters where losing has a consequence which is not just life or death. So that's, I think, a really, really cool little mechanic that could be explored further in a more complex and interestingly designed book. Um, I like the idea that you can lose a fight but then carry on the adventure because you will want to know what would have happened differently if you'd have beaten that encounter. And let's say it's a very tough combat encounter, you'd be thinking, let's see if we can find something that will help us out and make this combat encounter easier to deal with. The fear factor being stable, I think that's faintly interesting. Both previous approaches to mental toughness and sanity involve dynamic stats, which change to add pressure to the adventure. Here, the effects of fear are felt on your stamina, which is an interesting but reasonable choice, making stamina the thing that's going to get degraded by all manner of different things. I don't have a problem with that. I'm basically neutral on this mechanic. It serves a purpose, but probably doesn't have an impact on play that's sufficiently strong to deserve an entire extra stat. It's not bad. It's not good. Just there. I think it's definitely better implemented in both House of Hell and Beneath Nightmare Castle, but it does do the job it's there to do, and I can't fault it for that. In terms of the overall difficulty, one fascinating design choice is how little anything matters to your ability to beat the game. There are zero mandatory items that you need to beat the game, and zero mandatory clues. I found a few clues on my successful playthrough, but the choices I made meant that I never really had to use them. There are some hidden paragraphs, but none of them are actually necessary to succeed either, which I guess is nice. 
I'm not sure how these hidden paragraphs would make it vastly easier, given that you can sort of blunder around like I did and make it deep into the adventure without any difficulty, assuming you can avoid all of the very random death rolls. But to be honest, by the time I'm on my third playthrough, I'm not rolling dice unless I think it's interesting. It's a refreshing change from the fighting fantasy standard of this period of fighting fantasy writing, where you often need a laundry list of items and clues to umpteen hidden sections to proceed. Luke Sharp arguably goes too far the other way. Finding things that can be useful is a great feature of most fighting fantasy books, and Star Strider suffers from the lack of those little dopamine hits you get from realising you've got the right item to make an encounter trivial. While it's always frustrating when you get killed for a lack of a magic ring or a box of frogs or whatever, that kind of death gives you something to aim for on the next playthrough, and that encourages you to go back and explore more fully. In the case of Star Strider, the roadblocks are all random rolls, and there's no particular expectation that you'll do any better on those on your next attempt. You could try and vary your route to avoid some of the brutal randomness, but they're scattered throughout the book in pretty much every area, so you might as well stick to the path you've used and hope for the best. The fights are at least broadly fine, there's nothing too difficult, and while there's no interesting combat stuff beyond the critical hit rule, there's a range of mildly evocative enemies to fight which I found quite pleasing. I think my summary is that Luke Sharp is the antimatter version of Ian Livingstone. All of Livingstone's weaknesses are things Luke Sharp doesn't do much or indeed at all, and all of the things Livingstone does well, I think Luke Sharp does rather badly in this book. And I would definitely much rather read an Ian Livingstone game book, even one of the ones that was written when he was in a very grumpy mood. But equally, I don't regret the time I've spent with Star Strider either. We will be encountering Luke Sharp again in future episodes, when he'll be dipping his toe into the fantasy milieu. And I hope very much he'll have learned some useful lessons from what he's done with this book, both good and bad. Okay, I think I've wittered enough about this book. There's actually still more I could say, but I'm going to cut myself off there. I'm aiming to be back either next week or the following week with a bonus episode, which will also feature a science fiction game book, albeit one written by a pair of creators who know their way around the functional aspects of game book design very well indeed. I very much hope that you will join me for that. If you want to get in touch, you can contact me by email at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. The next episode was, in fact, suggested by one of my listeners, which is very, very cool because it was a game book series I'd never even heard of. So I do always really enjoy hearing from you. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you soon.